0: Hey everyone, you are in for a treat as today's podcast is part of our special Revitalize series. Revitalize is our biggest event of the year where we gather over 200 thought leaders for a weekend of community and conversation about the biggest, most important wellness topics of our time. This year, the insights we learned on the Revitalize main stage were too good not to share. So we're broadcasting them all in this special podcast series. Be sure to stay tuned until the end of the podcast so you can hear all the experts answer questions from the live studio audience we had at Revitalize. Enjoy. So sometimes what makes one person live longer than another or recover from a disease when someone else doesn't can't solely be chalked up to diet, exercise, good genes, or taking a particular medication. Case in point, the placebo effect. According to researchers at Stanford, over the past 30 years, neurobiological research has shown that the placebo, the placebo (laughs) effect, which stems in part from an individual's mindset or expectation to heal, triggers distinct brain areas associated with anxiety and pain that activate physiological effects that lead to healing outcomes. The idea of mindset and other intangible factors playing a vital role in physiological healing leads me to our next guests, Dr. Lisa Rankin and Dr. Kelly Turner. Both women have written books about the body's innate ability to heal and self-repair against all odds. In her book, Radical Remission, Dr. Turner describes in her interviews from people all around the world who were told they had days to live but ended up surviving and thriving some 25 years later, and she outlines nine common healing factors among survivors. In her book, Mind Over Medicine, Dr. Rankin also discusses this concept of spontaneous healing and lays out scientific data on how one's thoughts, feelings, and beliefs can alter the body's physiology and either flip on or flip off self-healing processes. Dr. Alyssa Rankin and Dr. Kelly Turner, welcome to the stage. So Kelly, I'm going to start with you. So in radical remission, let's talk, you talk about these nine common factors that you discovered among these people. And I'm curious, let's go through the factors and then are these habits that people can adopt or some of these personality traits that we're born with?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I study people who heal after they're sent home to die. Um, I'm not against Western medicine at all, but I do think these people need to be studied. And the nine common traits that I found, only two of them were physical, changing your diet and taking herbs and supplements. The other seven were mental, emotional, and spiritual. So it really was a key part of their healing, and I'll just run through them quickly. Um, Increasing positive emotions like joy and happiness, releasing suppressed emotions like stress, Um, following your intuition, deepening your spiritual connection practice, whatever that means for you, and then increasing your social support, receiving love, um, finding your reasons for living, why you want to live, and then taking control of your health. There is a tenth factor that's come up in the last five years, uh, which is exercise. Not everybody that I study can exercise when they're sent home in a wheelchair, so it didn't come up in my first 10 years of research, but in the last five years, what I've found is that radical mission survivors exercise and make it a lifelong habit as soon as they're able to. So those are the factors. Um, and these are absolutely things that you do not have to be born with. These are not personality traits. A lot of people who look at my research, they, they sort of hone in on taking control of your health, right? This idea of, you know, feeling like you're, you're in charge and you're, you're going to start making decisions. Not everybody I studied started off like that. A lot of them were very passive, just did whatever they were told, and unfortunately for them, it didn't work. So they didn't actually start adopting this habit until they were sent home on hospice. So all nine of these factors are things that you can start doing. I just hope you don't wait until you're on hospice before you start doing them. I think we can all start doing them today.
0: Alyssa, can you talk a little bit about trauma and emotional well-being and how they play a role in longevity?
2: Yeah, absolutely. when I when I was researching mind over medicine, which was the same time Kelly was researching radical remission, I, it became clear to me the role of emotions and stress and how it affects our physiology. That when we're when we're in the biochemistry of the chronic repetitive stress response that in, in this country people are in stress response over 50 times a day. And when you are, what's happening in the body is that you're filling your body with cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and you're missing the healing hormones, things like oxytocin, dopamines, serotonin, these sorts of things. And so it's literally about the biochemistry of how the cells are being bathed in this culture medium of these you know, all of these hormones, which, you know, there's a whole field of study now. Candace Peart kind of started it with the field of psychoneuroimmunology. But I hadn't realized when I was researching Mind Over Medicine, which was almost 10 years ago now, the primacy of the the relationship between trauma and disease. And this is not news. This is nothing new. Uh, Back in 1990, the... CDC and Kaiser did a study of over 17,000 people studying the adverse childhood experiences or events, the ACEs, and they have 10 things that you know, they were tracking what happens in people's childhood, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional or physical neglect, um, domestic violence in the household, substance abuse in the household, divorce or separation in the household, these kinds of things. These are the, like, big T traumas, right? Um, being exposed to a war situation. but what? And, and they weren't even tracking what I'm now really interested in, which are the developmental traumas, or what Buddhist psychiatrist Mark Epstein calls the trauma of everyday life. And I guarantee you that every single one of us in the room has some sort of developmental trauma because not a single one of us had perfect parents, and it's not their fault because they didn't have perfect parents. And these traumas get passed down generation to generation. But what they found in this giant study that has... There's about 50 research studies and papers that have come out of that collection of those 17,000 people, is that being exposed to those big T traumas in childhood increased your lifelong um, risk of everything from heart disease to cancer to autoimmune disease to chronic pain, to depression and suicide, substance abuse, and all of that, uh, and and it significantly affected longevity. So I think. We need, I, I was so excited recently when Nadine Burke Harris who is the California Surgeon General she's a pediatrician and she did a TED med talk about the link between childhood trauma and adult onset disease and I'm thrilled that we're starting to talk about this in a more ma- mainstream way
0: so your opinion it's interesting on trauma it's not just you know, people think of this super traumatic dramatic event if you will we all suffer it's it's adding up, chipping away at us, all of us.
2: Well, because it's affecting the biochemistry yeah. of the body, because this, these things live, well, it depends on who you talk to. If you talk to sort of the trauma therapists and the psychology world, then they say they live in the subconscious or the unconscious. I've spent the past seven years researching my seventh book called Sacred Medicine, where I've been going all over the world, working with shamans in Peru and Qigong masters in China and energy healers in the U.S., faith healers. I've been going to places like Lourdes and if in that realm, they would say that these are traumatic imprints that block the energy system, that sort of interrupt the, the flow of, of life force. Uh, and in, when those blocks, or in some of the religious traditions, they call them sanskaras, these samskaras uh, or blocks in the system will just impede the flow of chi or prana or whatever you want to call it from all of these different traditions and when, and even those small little things, they add up and they are dose dependent, it's a dose response, so the more of those big and little big T and little T traumas that build up in the system, the greater the risk of disease, especially as we get older.
0: So all these little T's and big T's we're holding on to, what are the things that we can do to help calm our system and aid healing boost lifespan etc
1: um, for trauma EMDR is wonderful eye movement desensitization and reprocessing that's good for people who have traumas that they don't really remember so it's great for PTSD it's great if you um, were a victim of sexual assault or if you know if you have some phobias that you can't explain um, I have a lot of Radical Commission survivors who had great healing from EMDR. Um, scientifically, EMDR has been shown to significantly decrease activity in your amygdala and hippocampus. So you're basically taking this stress response that, due to the trauma, is kind of always on, and through EMDR you can, you can quiet that down. Tapping, EFT, tapping. Um, a new study came out that showed that one hour of tapping can significantly change in a positive way the gene expression of 72 genes. One hour of tapping, 72 genes positively changed, which I think is awesome. Yeah.
2: I want to just add a plug for my two favorite trauma healing modalities, which most people don't know about. One is called Internal Family Systems, IFS, created by family therapist Richard Schwartz. Um, Dick and I are going to be teaching about, the, about IFS as treatment for physical disease, literally treating people's traumas using IFS is scientifically, we have the beginnings of scientific evidence that this can be used as treatment for physical disease. And advanced integrative therapy, which is one of the energy psychotherapies, similar but different to tapping, it's a more complete sort of Jungian-based approach created by a woman who's also a 30-year Sufi, Princeton professor, PhD, social worker, psychotherapist, um, who's been doing this for 30 years. And AIT is being used as primary treatment for cancer, for people who have, for whatever reason, opted out of conventional medical treatment or are using it as adjunctive treatment alongside conventional medical treatment. So this is really exciting to me because we used to think trauma was incurable, that basically if you carried these traumas in your system, especially the big T traumas, that you're sort of damaged goods, and maybe we could give you things like cognitive behavioral therapy to help you be more functional, but that, you know, you were going to carry those burdens or carry those blocks in your energy system for the rest of your life. And we now know, just in the past 20 years, this is completely treatable, completely curable, and you can get all the way to the other side of neutralizing these charges in the system that put the system at risk. And there's all kinds of like you know post-traumatic growth on the other side of these traumas so I think it's really it's really we really have to talk about the excitement and the hope yeah
0: so if we're relatively young healthy maybe some little t's not the big t's what are the things we should be doing to be taking care of our mental spiritual and emotional well-being that are like non-negotiable
1: meditation and therapy those are, that's what I would say. <laughs>
2: and, and I would say that one of the part of why I appreciate both IFS and AIT is because both of them are essentially also a spiritual path. And the way they work is it's really about becoming intimate with all of your parts, including your traumatized parts. And instead of running away from them or kind of exiling them, putting them over here and trying not to think what they think or feel what they feel. It's about really getting to know those parts and loving them. We talk about self-love, but we don't talk about the how. How do you love the parts of you that got hurt and then started acting out and doing all kinds of things that are potentially destructive to your health or to your relationships? And these are the how. So, and, and there's a lot of it that you can do yourself. So, you, yes, you can work with a therapist and be facilitated, and I highly recommend that. But it's also, the more you do that, the more you can do this on yourself. So it kind of fits with my interest in healing yourself. So it
0: seems like we talk about mental, spiritual, emotional well-being, there's, there's some great science, but not necessarily the science that gets the attention it deserves. What are the things that you guys are paying attention to?
1: I think, I think we're actually starting, the science is starting to get there. Um, which is, is exciting to me. I just read a fascinating study on a group drum circle. But and you know, so you think, okay, a 10-week group drumming course, that'll be fun. And it it significantly reduced people's depression and anxiety, all the things you would expect. But guess what? They also tested these people's saliva and they showed that it significantly reduced cortisol levels and inflammation levels. So we have this science now to apply to emotional interventions. And that's the marriage that I'm excited to finally be seeing. It's like, let's not just see what happens when you take this supplement or eat this new diet. What happens when you go through an eight-week forgiveness course? What happens to your body? What happens to your gene expression, to your inflammation levels, to your stress levels? That's what's exciting me. I want to put like a big yellow highlighter on part of what you just said, because I think this
2: community healing aspect is so potentially exciting and thrilling and from a public health perspective so important because right now the kind of healing work that I'm studying is a luxury good. If you can afford to come to the Ritz-Carlton do this kind of work with people like us or you can afford to pay $200 an hour for a therapist or go work with a shaman or an energy healer then you know you can have access to this. But I'm really excited about the data that's coming out. I'm, probably most of you have not heard of William Bankston. I recently updated Kelly so that she would know that he exists. He wrote a book called The Energy Cure, and he has spent the past 30 years doing hands-on healing in mice, curing cancer 92% of the time by teaching skeptical grad students a technique he calls cycling. It's like a mental image cycling. They put their hands on the cage. The, rat, the mice are all supposed to die in 27 days. And 92% of the time, even these non-believers who are complete atheist biologists are able to cure cancer in mice. And anecdotally, he's using it to treat pancreatic cancer. The faster growing the cancer, the more it seems to be responsive to this method. Um, That's super exciting to me. But the problem is, it's also curing the control mice. So even without a placebo arm, like all they have to do is look at these mice. And if they're in the study, they're getting cured too, which he believes it's related to something called resonant bonding, and I think this explains places like Lourdes, where basically, if enough of us get together with the intention of healing ourselves and each other, and we're bonded, and probably the more bonded we are, the more this is true, then if one of you has a radical remission, then everybody else in the room has a greater risk of through a mysterious mechanism we can't yet scientifically explain, you may also get cured so that's why i think wow. gatherings like this community spaces and i'm really excited about trying to create what we're calling healing soul tribes kind of imagine 12 step what 12 step is for recovery for people who are on a healing journey from illness injury or trauma so stay tuned that's what that's what i'm working on
0: so we're in the age of unprecedented information with data and testing and, and this is something i struggle with you know i, I do everything i want to know everything but One, is it helpful? One, is it too much information?
1: Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I had a a gentleman come to my workshop last year, and he's been in uh, the the genomic world for business forever. Um, He's... Yeah, probably 50s or 60s, and he got diagnosed with stage 4 esophageal cancer. This is a um, cancer of the esophagus, and when it's stage 4, it has a 4% chance of being alive in 5 years. It's an extremely fatal, aggressive, fast-moving cancer. And he, he came from the world of genomics, so he said, okay, I know you're going to you know, take out part of the cancer in my body here. I know you're going to sequence it. Uh, can I get a copy of the data? And they're like, no, we're, we're not obligated to give you that data. And he was like, excuse me. <laughs> So he actually went to this place called the Human Longevity Company. There's like a a company called Human Longevity. Um, And they have a trial for cancer patients where if you give them some of your tumor sample, they'll give you access to the data. So he took a terabyte of data from uh, from his cancer tumor. He also got his healthy cells from other places in his body sequenced, and he sequenced his microbiome. He shipped a hard drive... FedExed it to Germany and made his own personalized anti-cancer vaccine and it's working. Wow. So I do think that some of this data stuff is really good news. I do think it can get a bit much. What I love about this this gentleman is he approached me and he said, so I'm doing all this data stuff, I've got the vaccine. He's like, but man, those seven emotional factors have been really tough. (laughs) (laughs) So I think you, you can't, it's not black and white. You can't go all the way over here in data and say it's, it's just going to be this personalized vaccine and poof, I'm done. Because if you have these big T's, if you have these little T's, if you have chronic stress, your immune system cannot do its job, which is to remove cancer cells every single day. So I think there's, there's a balance between taking this terabyte of data, shipping it to Germany and getting a personalized cancer vaccine and I think listening to him saying wow those seven emotional factors have been really been tough these last two years we have to honor that as well
0: so this that's pretty futuristic and kind of scary but cool (laughs) uh what's what's in the next front frontier of emotional healing you know if you could predict if you could look to the future what are we going to be talking about in five to ten years what's exciting to you too?
2: Well, again, if I, if I have anything to say about it, we're gonna, you're gonna be able to find a healing soul tribe in your neck of the woods as ubiquitous as a 12-step program where you can come together to do trauma work together for free where it's by donation, and leaders have been, you know, had minimal training to be able to create a container that's safe enough with a structure that's as bulletproof as 12-step. I'm working right now with, we sort of are doing a beta program of this called the Healing Soul Tribe. We're doing it all virtually right now, and we're training group leaders who are then going out to do this in person. Because we need touch. We need connection. We need to feel love and gratitude. We need to be able to be vulnerable with each other. We need to move those emotions. We need to be able to feel grief and feel our rage and feel our hopelessness and our despair, especially with what's going on environmentally with the planet, with, you know, all of our natural world right now. So it's not just your individual traumas that you're dealing with right now. We're actually facing things like climate change, which is a massive collective trauma. So I think we really need an expedited way to get trauma healing to the masses in an affordable way where it's not a luxury good, and then those... Circles of healing can become social circles because I did a TED talk about, uh, called the number one public health issue doctors aren't talking about, about the epidemic of loneliness. Yeah. And so I also see this as the antidote to to loneliness. It's medicine. And the people who are doing this, and we have our, our leaders kind of experimenting with this, they are in tears of awe with how much love is in the room. And it's consistent with what Dean Ornish found when he was doing his cardiac care program for people that had blocked coronary arteries. He gave them, you know, diet and exercise and meditation. But when I sat him down and I said, Dean, what is really reversing these heart blockages, which we didn't even know you could unblock coronary arteries without surgery or stenting. And he's shown that, and he said, "Lisa, it's a conspiracy of love. I get broken-hearted people together in a room, and they love each other, and their heart's open. I mean, oh. that. Oh.
0: So, yeah. <laughs> so... so. So one thing, last question, one thing we have a lot of in this room is purpose and community. So what is the connection to longevity, purpose and community? How important are they?
1: Well, according to radical mission survivors and their healers, having a purpose or strong reasons for living is what pulls qi into your body. And so if you ask a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner what happens when a body dies, they'll say that the qi leaves, all the qi leaves. And so... When a cancer patient goes to see a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner, what they often, the diagnosis is that they're depleted in qi. They're depleted in life force. Now, whether that's because you've got a toxin in you that's just disrupting your system or whether it's because you have a big trauma that's blocking your system. um, For whatever reason, when cancer patients go to a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner, they always say you're too low on your life force. And so the, the benefit of having focusing on your purpose and why you want to be here is that, again, this is the theory, but in Chinese medicine, the theory is that it literally pulls energy into your system and it's, it's like charging up your phone. You charge up, up the system by plugging into your purpose. I love that. And I think it's cyclic. I totally agree with everything Kelly's saying. It's like
2: when we start focusing on service, not in a codependent, giving until you're depleted, incapable of receiving kind of way, but genuinely being excited and passionate about sharing the thing, the gift that you have that you were sent here to give away. And you know what your giveaway is and you've found your calling and now you're fulfilling it. Uh, And I wrote all about this, if any of you are curious about that, in my book, The Anatomy of a Calling. But when you start offering in that way, it literally becomes a circuit of, as you are giving, you are receiving this waterfall of life force. And the more you're able to receive it and really drink it in, like, yes, take it in, breathe it in, and then breathe it out. And this is the primary spiritual uh, law of many of the indigenous communities that I've studied with for sacred medicine, this law of sacred reciprocity, of we have to give as much as we receive in equal measure, just like the breath, breathing out, breathing in.
0: I love that. Okay, guys, it's time for questions. Get the app out. (laughs) All right. First one is from Megan Bruno. How does emerging research on vagus nerve stimulation relate to healing trauma? And how can we put that into practice with our clients and ourselves? Good one.
2: Do you want to talk? So Stephen Porges has done the most research on polyvagal theory. And part of what he's uncovered with his research is that, you know, we think about the stress response as the fight-or-flight response. But we also have a freeze response. And when there's a lot of trauma in the system, when those, when that collective burden of all of those blocks starts to build up, then we have a tendency to actually go frozen when those traumas get triggered. And so he teaches a lot. about. It fits with what we're talking about, about community. He, te- he teaches about co-regulation, especially when it comes to things like couples therapy. Like when, if any of you are in... A partnership—that is your number one, as Dick Schwartz and IFS calls your TOR mentor, T-O-R hyphen mentor. Because the people that are closest to you are gonna trigger or they're likely to trigger you the most. So they're gonna activate your trauma so that they can come up for healing. But then what happens is that if we go into that freeze response, it often is activating toxic shame. We're not aware of it. It's sort of in the subconscious. And so when we can learn how our partners and how we in our systems what we need in order to co-regulate, then the we can start to bring the vagus nerve back online so that it can do its healthy homeostatic self-repair business rather than taking us out with, you know, with the freeze response. Uh, I could go on about that.
1: And I will (laughs) say children do this naturally when they suck their thumbs. Yeah. That is them stimulating the vagus nerve at the roof of your mouth. So I think in our stressed out culture, we've sort of forgotten how to get back into the the sort of calm, relaxed mode that Kids are naturally. So that's m- the
0: vagus nerve. That's what I doing nerve. all the time. Like literally
1: roof of your mouth.
2: And like my partner and I, we literally, when we get triggered, we literally lie on top of each other and just breathe together. This is one of the most simple co-regulating things that you can do. And it doesn't have to be your partner. You can we do cuddle puddles in my workshops where we all literally lie like if you guys were in my Let's workshop. have a cuddle puddle. You'd be in trouble because I'd be like, <laughs> chairs are going puppy pile now. <laughs> With consent yeah. yes with consent so, and good boundaries
0: So, so we, we have a we have a couple questions all Touching on the same point, which I, I think everyone can relate to here, you know c- cancer unfortunately is is what it is and, and uh Touches you know many people here including, you know, my family and lots of families what can you do what what you know t- to help that person through that process what can we do to help them become one of the good stories out there?
1: This is a tricky one because the age old phrase, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink is really, really true. Um, So you give them a helpful book like Lissa's or mine, you lead by example and you offer help and then you back off. I think I've, I've struggled um, with my own family members. I'm like, I literally wrote the book on this. (laughs) Literally. Will you please follow what's in the book? And they don't. And they die. And it's really sad. But I'm also a researcher. And I know that these nine factors may not work for everyone. These nine factors work for the 1,500 cases that I've studied. They may not work for the general population. So we also have to be careful in in what we're promising, and I think that's really important in the field of wellness is to say, you know, the research is where it's at. These things won't hurt you, might help you, might help you a lot. If you want to give them a try, I will be here to support you and guide you. And I think that's really as much as you can do.
2: I I think we really can give people invitations, but even that, I would even... Wait to invite. I would ask somebody, like, what do you need right now? They're going through a lot. And my mother got cancer and died last year. She also was not interested in using what I have learned or what Kelly has learned. And everyone is entitled to their own journey. So I I think the most important thing is, first, treat any trauma in you. Like, I, I led an AIT session in a group of 500 therapists on all of the times and all of the ways someone else wasn't willing to touch their trauma and you got hurt treat yourself for that first because really you're just frightened that you're going to lose somebody that you love and if they're open to your invitation and they're excited about that and it feels nurturing and supportive then you can start to give them suggestions of things that may or may not be helpful but really trust their intuition as well what worked for you or what you believe in may not be what works for them i think one of the things that we see in radical remission survivors is every path is so individualized yes it's very personal and the person themselves is especially if they're at all tuned in, will be able to follow their own path.
0: And I'll echo, I can't, I can, countless times I've given both of your books, Mind Over Medicine, Radical Remission, read their books, they're really fantastic, and uh, I, they are, they're incredible books. More more so than, I've said to you both, like, the amount of times I've recommended your books to people, they really are incredible, life-changing books, so, um, Last question from Mariela. Good question. We talked about purpose. In your opinion, what's the most effective way to help someone find their purpose?
2: I, I just read a book called The Daily Flame after 10 years of writing daily emails that are like love letters from your inner pilot light. And I think the number one key, whether you're talking about finding your purpose or finding your soulmate or healing cancer, is to learn to open to spiritual guidance open to intuition, open to the divine spark inside of you that has access to the gnosis field, that basically can see what's right for you better than your small local mind can possibly see. There's, there is an access, like a portal... And every spiritual path is about opening that portal. So it does not matter. If you go to the mystical traditions of every religion, they are teaching the same thing, which is access the divine within and listen to that guidance and learn to recognize it and discern it and then find heal the parts that are too frightened to follow it. And
1: that's true for everything we've been talking about, I would say.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I completely agree. The intuition is a great guide for your purpose. And I would also say, um, not everybody has a big, fat, juicy purpose. Some people, their purpose in life is just to enjoy every day and breathe in in life and breathe in love. So, you know, you don't have to find one big thing. You're going to go cure climate change or cure cancer. You know, that beautiful poet, Mary Oliver, who said, what are you going to do with this one wild, precious life? And apparently her answer was, I hope I'm just walking through the fields looking at the flowers. So maybe that's your purpose. But um, intuition is great, and also just do what feels good. If doing a crossword feels good, or building a puzzle feels good, or you know looking at flowers feels good, start there. I think the more you do things that feel good, the closer you'll get to feeling good all the time and what better purpose is there in life than to feel good all the time?
2: I think a lot of people also really find a passionate, excitement, dose of chi, life force around where they've been to hell and made it back. So ask yourself, if you're at all uncertain about your own purpose, where have I been to hell and I've actually gotten to the other side of hell and usually that's the last thing people want to get involved in because there's traumas in the system. But when you heal those traumas, it's extremely satisfying. Like, I was in hell as a doctor in a conventional medical practice. It was extremely traumatizing for me. I had post-traumatic stress disorder, literally full-on, after leaving the hospital, had to get that treated. And now I teach doctors and other healthcare providers what I've learned about consciousness and healing, and it's extremely rewarding, so fulfilling, because I know exactly the hell that they're in. And I have gotten to the other side. So just ask yourself that question. Where have I been to hell and back? And there may be little seeds in there.
0: I love that. Thank you so much, Lisa and Kelly. you.
2: such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.